everybody. Welcome to the MM&M podcast. My name is Larry Dobrow, and I'm the senior editor of MM&M. Um, we have a good one today. Um, ordinarily, any room I'm in, I'm not the smartest person. But today, I know I'm not the smartest person because we have Pratap Kedkar, who is the managing principal of ZS and the head of its global pharmaceuticals practice. So we're going to talk about a wide range of topics um, around AI data and customer centricity. Before we get going, however, a couple of quick plugs. Um, the awards deadline for MM&M's annual award ceremony, which will be in October. The awards deadline is April 8th, so please go to our website to find out information about submitting. Um, our media summit is scheduled for April 20th, and MM&M Transform is in May, um, I believe May 13th. So <laughs> thank you to Carrie, our digital editor, who gave me the uh, cue there. Um, Patap, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in here. Thank you so much, Larry. Pleasure to be here. And um, you know, we were talking before we went on about you traveling up from Philadelphia on a train that was perhaps a little bit less populated than it usually is. Absolutely. No, I think this coronavirus uh, crisis that we have at the moment is definitely affecting not just everyday life, but uh, is beginning to have an impact on the pharmaceutical industry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a range of topics not related to this, but um, you know, given your role and given the contact that you have with pharmaceutical companies on a daily basis, um, what's your kind of big picture overarching take on their feeling vis-a-vis some of the things that have been coming out over the last week or so? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think there are two buckets that I'm beginning to see. One that is, of course, very much in the news is, How can the pharmaceutical industry play a good role in developing vaccines, developing treatment, and being part of the solution? I think the other one is much more around business continuity and business disruption, because as daily life changes, pharmaceutical companies are beginning to worry about uh, what does this mean to demand? Mm -hmm. What will it actually do to other sicknesses? Because, of course, people continue to be sick with other diseases, other comorbidities, Will that have a spillover effect because the focus of the healthcare system is now in a very different place? Mm -hmm. What happens to comorbid patients? What happens to simple transactional things like reps calling on physicians? (laughs) You know, physicians may not be there as much. They may be otherwise occupied. We're already beginning to hear initial reports that reps calling on physicians is getting quite disrupted in some areas of the country, especially around these communities that we hear about where there is some concentrated action around the uh, coronavirus. So figuring out what is the impact is something that I think people are beginning to worry about. Mm -hmm. How do you model this? How long will it last? What will be the impact? What will be the downstream execution implications? And what can we do about it? And in fact, that to tie it back to today's theme, if personal contact becomes such an issue that social distancing is a, is a new phrase for all of us. <laughs> social distancing, it's our, new, uh, you know, it's our new catchphrase. What will happen to personal promotion? Will that mean that non-personal promotion, which includes marketing and data and digital and all of this other virtual ways of interacting with each other, will that get a big bump? People are already beginning to talk about, you know, this may be the year of telehealth because telehealth will break out Mm -hmm. as a new solution that is actually something that people turn to because they have to, not because it's a nice thing to have. (laughs) All all it took was an existential event, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes society needs a little bit of a push. This is not the kind of push that we wanted, but we have it. So let's... uh, Let's see where it takes us. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in our little 
you know, media events corner of the world, it's the same thing. It's like one of these, like, all right, first it was a disruption. Now you start thinking, all right, we have this, this, and this on the calendar for the rest of the year. A lot of this stuff's not going to happen, or if it does happen, it's going to happen in such a diminished state. And I think that's where everyone seems to be kind of wrapping their head around that at this point. Yeah. In fact, you know, in the, in the provider world, um, home healthcare has been talked about for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, executives of healthcare systems say things like 50% of what happens in the hospital today will move to the home. Mm -hmm. And we're almost like back back to what I was saying about a nudge. This is the kind of thing that will force people to really think creatively about it Mm -hmm. as opposed to come up with reasons not to do it. So I think people begin to see some longer term impact as well. Uh, Probably in a few months, people will start seriously thinking about the experience they have. So. Mm -hmm. We'll have you back. who will discuss that when that comes to pass, right? <laughs> um, let's let's move on to the topic that we wanted to talk about a little bit about how data is helping pharma become more customer centric. Um, I know that two of us have spoken about this before for stories and a couple other things, but you know it, it had always been sort of in a theoretical, like you know this is going to happen soon. Give me sort of the big picture take, sort of the state of the union as to where we are with this right now. I mean, it seems that a lot of the stuff that had been presented as sort of in the future, next year, year after that, year after that, is coming to pass. And we're seeing it in ways that are interesting and surprising a little bit. Yeah. Uh, my favorite quote is from a science fiction author, uh, William Gibson. Mm-hmm. He said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that applies very well to the topic at hand. So to your point, I think data, AI, and pharma companies' ability and willingness to apply it has already gotten here. So this is no longer some futuristic thing. I would say that probably about 10 to 15 companies are very much actively doing the things that we are going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Has the rest of the industry caught up? Not yet. The future is unevenly distributed. Mm -hmm. But I think what is now happening is that this is a new way to do marketing. It's it's an additional skill that pharma marketers are beginning to get comfortable with. And what it means is that as a result of using data, I think they can get much closer to the customer, uh, not in the distancing sense, (laughs) but in the knowledge sense, right? Knowing a lot about the customer. And the customer is this monolithic abstract term. Mm -hmm. But the point is, at the end of the day, there are 100,000 physicians. There are a million individual patients. So how do you get closer to them? How do you get that insight? And then our current mechanisms in pharma marketing are not really set up to take a million insights. So how do you set up the system, the process, uh, the people to actually work when there are a million insights coming in every Sunday? I think that is a very new way of working and it's beginning to happen in a few companies. And that's why I'm very encouraged that broadly speaking, there is a leading frontier of companies, people leveraging this data. We are beginning to see actual results. So I think that's the other thing that's different in 2020. Uh, Starting late last year, we were able to quantify that for those frontier companies that were able to do this, did the sales actually change? Mm -hmm. Were more patients able to get on the medicines of that company and the answer is unequivocally yes. So we are seeing somewhere like a 5 to 10% impact mm-hmm. on top-line sales as a result of doing this. And I think that is the final proof of the pudding. Not just that you can do it, but that it is worth doing. When, when you have that 5 to 10% number, people are going to pay attention. 
Um, what separates the, I know you had said about 10 to 15 companies that are really doing this, and then there are some you know, laggards. Um, what separates the ones that are there with the ones who are still on the way? Um, is it a philosophical thing? Is it a risk and tolerance thereof thing? So I think one thing that pharma has suffered from or blessed with, depending <laughs> on your perspective, is that the business model has worked really quite well. Pharma has been a profitable industry. Things have gone well. Of course, there is pricing pressure and all kinds of negative PR now. But overall, the industry is reasonably healthy. And that means that in good times, you don't really have a powerful impetus to change back to our earlier dialogue. Sometimes you need a bit of a crisis uh, to encourage the right amount of change. Um, I think that change, that push has been felt by some of these companies who are doing it because, for instance, their product is pretty mature. It's in the last three to five years of its life. Now, I can continue with the current model and put a thousand or several hundred representatives in the old commercial model on this. On the other hand, I can say, you know what? I do need those resources to launch all these other brands that are coming. Can I get more creative? Because I'm almost forced to be. I do not want to spend all that money doing what I used to do. So that's one piece. I think the second piece is three or four years ago, there wasn't enough data. We could talk about nice theory and AI and all of that, but there just wasn't enough data for people to feel confident that this would work. And I think what's happening now is the data is far from complete. Let me be the first one to say that, but it's getting to the point where it's 60, 70% reliable in terms of customer interactions, customer insight. And that, I think, has encouraged people to say, now I'm not just shooting darts at a dartboard. I really do know something about this individual. So as a combination of that data presence and the computing, uh, and of course, AI's maturity to be able to do this in other industries several years ago is emboldening these pharma companies. So that's sort of the second piece. And the third piece, which is very peculiar to pharma, for a long time, data and AI was the, the province of R&D. I mean, even now, if you take all of this AI investment in healthcare, almost a third of this money, billions of dollars from startups and venture capital, is going to drug discovery. But I think some pharma companies made the realization that, look, yeah, maybe I will discover a new drug and there are some good promising successes there, early successes. But by the time it actually accrues to the shareholder, that's a 10-year wait. Because yeah. I have to go through phase one, two, three, even though I've discovered a great drug. We, we don't have that patience. We don't have that patience. Shareholders don't have that patience. And here's the thing. The person in the company or the persons who are mandated with this new push using AI, they don't have 10 years. They have to prove themselves in two years, you know, if you're a chief digital officer. So short term, what place in pharma can actually bring you results? It's the commercial side. The product is ready. It's well tested. All you need to do is to get another 10%. And if you have a $2 billion drug, that's $200 million incremental. That's the kind of two-year window I can actually show some provable results in. And that creates my runway to have that 10-year patience. Mm -hmm. And I think some companies are realizing that therefore focusing on commercial is actually a pretty good idea, even though the main narrative of pharma is, of course, always about innovation, drug discovery, and things like that. So I think while that goes on, some people have turned to commercial to say, show me those successes now. And the companies that are sort of flipped over that particular hurdle have said, ah, let me do this. I will also do that. 
but let me not ignore the short term for some long term promise. Um, I think you partially answered this question, but I'd like to throw it at you anyway. Um, how much of a challenge is it selling some of these things internally? You know, there's always that kind of reluctance of, well, let somebody else be the first. You know, um, if you are somebody that's an advocate of you know data AI within you know the commercialization arm of any big company. You know, what, what, are, what are some of the roadblocks you're going to face? How are you going to get past those roadblocks? Or is it just a matter of, like you said, showing that first big success, being like, listen, you know, here's just a small product that paid off in a big way. Let's do this thing in a bigger scale. Right. So I think one big hurdle that's always been there is, like I said before, the current state is not completely broken. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard for an advocate to make the case for big change. Mm-hmm. That's one. I think the second roadblock is that um, for many marketers, what is insight? Insight is, well, of course, they are data-driven. I don't want to say that they're not. But the data is about primary research, talking to 300 doctors to see how they feel, talking to patients to see how they feel, what are their needs. And then that data gets distilled down to a few insights, let's say four segments in a segmentation. Mm -hmm. Now, the marketer can get their human head around it and say, oh, I can work with four or five segments. Yeah. Now I know what chunks to think in. Now what AI does is it's a very different way of working. It says, no, 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 I'm not going to give you four insights. You have 100,000 physicians. I will give you 100,000 insights. Mm-hmm. And the marketer goes, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> I can barely handle four or five, yeah. and I do that once a year. You're going to give me 100,000 pieces of data every Sunday. I don't have the bandwidth or the ability to absorb this and turn it into 100,000 decisions. And I think that's the other roadblock, which is this is a very different way of working. You don't just get insight from AI. AI can also give you, and it has to give you, what is the action you need to take, Mm -hmm. the micro action, right? So if you, again, let's go back to the favorite comparator everyone has. Everyone wants to be a Netflix or an Amazon. Mm -hmm. There is no manual person involved. There is no one at Netflix sitting down saying, what movie should I recommend to Larry today? It's all mechanized. And so the idea that right from the beginning, you have to have this sort of algorithmic or process mindset, as opposed to a human absorbing insights and translating that into actions or recommendations. That paradigm shift is very hard to go over. And so these internal advocates who are charted with uh, this kind of a mandate have had that struggle. And then the last struggle that we still face is that there are, uh, you know, the industry is littered with proofs of concept. Somebody said to me, my company has more pilots than United Airlines. (laughs) Rim shot, you know. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) wants to test everything, which is great. Mm -hmm. But lots and lots of proof of concepts, very little actually coming to scale. And without the scale, you don't make the 200 million. And so the idea that you need to then have an infrastructure not just to do fast-fail proofs of concept, but out of 10, maybe two succeed, how do you take those two to scale on a nationwide basis, on multiple brands basis, on multiple country basis, that some of those companies have managed to do. And that is actually a very hard push sometimes to create you know, this organizational change across silos because marketing has to change, sales has to change, IT has to change, commercial analytics have to change. In fact, they have to work together. And so this idea that there is this common digital or AI thread or backbone running through all of these that forces them all to be different is an even harder organizational change. And that's what I think most people are grappling with. 
Uh, to follow up on that, um, the companies that you work with, is there that appreciation that, you know, this is not easy? You know, a couple of years ago, there that was the buzzword. You know, you'd go to any big health tech conference and you hear, oh, AI and data are going to be the next thing. And, you know, you could be like, what do you mean by AI? Like, well, uh, you know, AI, like, you know, artificial intelligence. It's uh, like, but what do you mean? How is this going to work? Um, I mean, is, is, that part of, is that part of the challenge? The idea that a lot of people figure like, well, AI, okay, we're just going to feed a bunch of stuff in the computer. It's going to spit out these great ideas for us, not realizing how many people need to be on board to see a full effect of this. Yes. So actually, one of the things, so AI is like electricity, I think, as Elon Musk or others have said. Mm-hmm. It's there everywhere. It's wonderful. But till people figure out what specifically I can use it for, what is the problem I have that that thing will help me for? That part had not happened much. But I think one of the things that I want to also bring back to this theme is this idea of customer centricity um, or uh, customer experience. I think marketers discovered that, oh, this is a problem. I'm slowly coming to grips with the fact that simply doing promotion or simply promising clinical outcomes is no longer enough. What is this extra bit, customer experience? What does that mean? Does it matter? Oh yes, this is one place after I believe that it matters Mm -hmm. and it's worth doing where data and AI can help me. So to your earlier question, rather than saying, what is AI? It's like, what is your problem? And can that problem be helped by AI? I think that's what has happened in terms of making some progress is that people have been able to write down five or six challenges, problems they have, and then be able to see can data, AI, digital, all these buzzwords come together to solve that problem. And when we see that happen, and and of course it scales, like I said, that's what has created some of these converges. But otherwise you're right, it is very hard to say, Here's this miracle thing. Now, how is it going to help me? I think going through that phase of problem identification has been really crucial because people have then been willing to say, all right, here's a specific problem. I have 10,000 oncologists. They don't like my reps very much. Rep Hmm. access has fallen from 80% in the old days to something like 25 to 30%. How do I get to these doctors? That's a real problem. Does digital work? Well, not for everybody, but for some people it does. Oh, which people? I can't send it to everybody. Who likes to open their email? What kind of emails do they like to read? Do they have particular affinity towards a topic? Oh my goodness, I sent the rep and three emails with the same topic to them in the same week. That can't be good. Can AI and digital help me solve this problem and create a better customer experience? So that becomes something tangible that me as a pharma marketer can relate to. It's something I want to absolutely solve. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can't talk about specific you know, programs that you've worked on, but um, what what does, you know, I don't want to say what the typical success look like because every success is going to look different. There are different problems, there are different areas, everything else. But um, what 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 is that first success? You know, can it be something as small as, to go back to what you just said, getting rid of redundant communications, you know, getting more hitting them at the right time of day versus at a time of day when, you know, they're occupied with whatever else. What, what, what does that first success look like for some of the organizations you've worked with? So here's a small piece of success, and I'll give you some statistics uh, for pharma industry as a whole. We love doing a lot of promotion. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, 65 to 70,000 reps in the U.S. doing this every day. Yeah. Um, Digital got so successful in some sense that we now send as an industry two and a half times more touches through digital 
than we do through reps. Yeah. So it sort of skyrocketed. Now, look at it from the customer's viewpoint. Let's stand in the physician's shoes. So you're a typical physician, perhaps a busy one. So let's say you're one of the top 30,000 busiest physicians in the US. You're looking at all this stuff coming at you. Guess what the average high-value physician in the US gets from pharma? 2,800 touches every year. That's once an hour. Either it's a rep or an email or a pop-up alert, some mobile push thing coming at you or a person. Sounds exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. If, if, if I were getting this stuff in my mailbox, I would just switch it off. Yeah. I would opt out. And so that customer backlash is beginning to happen. And so to, to get back to your question, here's the first thing you can do. Do you even know what kind of a problem you're causing with your physicians? One company was doing 200 odd touches. So 2800 is for the whole industry, but an individual company, depending on its portfolio of products and how much you know common targets there are, could actually be going to one physician 200 times a year. Of course, when they do that, it's too much. It is not personalized. This person doesn't like to open emails. His open rate is 2%. Yet we say, hey, I have an email. Why don't we send it to everybody? Since Why not? 50 cents, right? <laughs> Just spray and pray. It works, we think. Yeah. But actually, <laughs> to an extent, <laughs> what's happening now is the customer pushback. They are, I mean, open rates for pharma emails are down to five percent. What were they at their highest? So um, I think initially, when things were lower and people were getting used to the technology, when you talk to physicians, they are actually quite open to pharma promotion. As high as sixty percent will say, if you send it to me right with the right topic at the right time, I will open it. Okay. So it's not that they are. Um, in principle, opposed to pharma doing something with them or doing this to them, but they want it done in a way that doesn't feel like they are the dartboard and pharma just indiscriminately throwing stuff at them, like a, you know, this this word that we have targeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine what the customer feels like. They're a target. Um, so to your point, where to start somewhere small? Well, what are you doing to physicians? Can you even add up all the data that you're doing and, and see that? Second, does this physician like to open emails? Does this physician like to interact with reps? Very simple, two by two. Mm-hmm. You like to see reps, you don't like to see reps. You open your emails, you know, twice as much as the average. I'm not saying 100%, but even if you open your emails 20, 30% of the time, that's useful to know. Others don't. Some people like both. Some people like neither. Some people like one, but not the other. Here's a simple two by two for you to know. Forget about the product, uh, uh, you know, therapy writing and all that. From an interaction engagement perspective, these are the four types of customers I have. Do I know who is who? Mm-hmm. And if I do that and I can streamline my communication, I can personalize things a little. I can get to you with the channels you like. That's sort of hurdle number two. Let's cross that. And eventually it gets to the harmonization, which is I'm doing all these things. Can we please space it out a little bit? Rather than having four things happen on the same day, can we make them once a week? And that was very difficult. It's sort of very easy to say, but it's not one person doing all this, right? The email vendor is doing their thing. You know, web, WebMD or the mobile vendor is doing their thing. The reps, of course, have are completely oblivious to what's going on in the other channels. And <laughs> so they do what they They're do. just out there doing their thing. So everybody's doing their thing. And so it's become, as I said before, digital channels proliferated so that we went from one channel to maybe five or 10. And 10 independent things are causing a lot of chaos, not just volume, but this conflict at the customer that the harmonization is missing. So if you do it in these small chunks, personalize on the channel first, 
then harmonize your interactions, then maybe, and this is the harder problem, personalize on the content. Do you like to get efficacy messages? Well, some people like to hear about affordability because they are in an area with a lot of low-income people, low-income patients. So uh, some other, uh, you know, KOL-type person might say, you know, I'm really interested in the efficacy of this new indication. Talk to them about that. So without this feedback, I don't know how to personalize the content, but now I'm beginning to. So I think you can approach it in small steps and get better. You don't have to go big bang with everything under the sun in one shot. It's probably a bit of a lay question, but, you know, you have so many physicians almost you know, numbed by the amount of communications that were, you know, targeted, again, that word, targeted their way. Um, how, how long can you, how long does it take to affect that customer experience turnaround, you know, to re, almost to retrain the position that, all right, this thing comes in, it's going to be something that's useful to me, delivered at a time when I'm receptive to it and containing the type of information I want versus like, all right, I'm just getting this usual spray that usually hits around Tuesday at 11 o'clock. Um, how, how, I mean, can you turn it around quickly or is it a matter of like, well, you know, you got to you gotta re-earn it? So a couple of things. First of all, the physicians have already shifted their mindset where product is not everything. So that was the other thing. The marketplace also had to be prepared, right? If the customer is not used to dealing with you the way you want to deal with them, that's a bigger problem. But the customers have shifted. So just to give you a couple of statistics, we um, interviewed about 300 oncologists and we said, what would make you recommend this company? So this was about a specific pharma, set of pharma companies uh, to your peers. Is it the product? Is it the people? Is it the service? Is it these interactions? Give us the pie chart. And it turned out very surprisingly that even in oncology, where you know every company says my product is king, it will sell itself, the product on average is only responsible for about a third huh. of the customer experience. So if I ask the customer, you know, what is the net promoter score? And based on the replies, we calculate that. It's a sort of universal metric for customer experience. Only a third of the experience is driven by the product. Two thirds is all these other things. The good news for a marketer is the product is given to them. They can't really change it. But the other two thirds, they do have a hand in changing and designing. So that was the first glimpse of light, which is the customer has already changed. I think we can change too if we get that a good handle on that two-thirds. That is not the product that is driving the experience. So to your point, the customers are ready. And when we do these uh, pilots and proof of experiment and the test uh, control analysis, we find that it takes about three to six months, six months, let's say, mm -hmm. to begin to see positive, clear, statistically significant results that this thing is working. So I think that's that goes back to the 24 month, right? So you do the analysis and the setup for six months, then you test for six months, then you take another six months to scale, and then six months after that, you're beginning to see national results. That's very encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've talked about reps um, a couple of times, you know, glancingly over the course of this conversation. Um, the rep matrix has changed as a result of the AI and data era as well, hasn't it? It has. And I think that was another big change management challenge in some sense. Mm -hmm which is that when digital first came, emails and such, there was this conflict, you know, is it rep versus digital? Oh, I don't want to have as many reps because I'm going to substitute them by emails. Well, people soon discovered that that had its problems. Email open rate is 
reps, uh, physicians don't see the access is down to like 45% now, but it's a, that's a whole lot better than 5%. <laughs> different, different <conversation>. different conversation. <laughs> and so then the, the, the story or the narrative became, how can I use all this digital and data and AI to make the rep more effective? So it became a question of this and that, not this or that. Mm-hmm. I think that was another sort of big mental shift. And so when you sit down with the reps and you say, you know what, uh, you know, we all do this in our daily lives. We, we get uh, alerts from GPS, we <laughs> get texts. We are so used to digital technology helping us, enabling us to do much better things with our life and our time. And when the rep says, oh, so as I go in to prepare, I have to talk to eight doctors a day. You're just going to give me in three lines what's going on with this doctor and here's a couple of ideas or suggestions on what you should do. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. It's like me going into a meeting and somebody walking with me before I enter the room and just giving me a five-minute brief yeah. on what's going on, what do I have to do, what do I have to remember. Yes, the average rep, by the way, gets 35 to 40 reports. Mm-hmm. So there's no dearth of data but the data has not been digested into an insight and the insight has not been translated into a micro action that I can actually do something with. Mm-hmm. And that idea that you're now helping the rep do something that they would have had to do and many of them don't do, which is comb through 40 reports to figure out what's going on with this doctor, that was the other light bulb. And so if you can streamline the use of this by the rep, you're actually multiplying the effectiveness of the rep by 15 to 20%. Hence, you get your impact on top line sales as well because reps still drive a decent amount mm-hmm. of business. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, we've been talking to reps over the years about these issues, and you know, first it was sort of perceiving a lot of the things we're talking about as you know, this is the enemy. You know, and um, I remember I can't remember who it was. Someone obviously much smarter than I am, but basically said like, "Listen, you know, somebody asks you, you want beer or do you want tacos? You don't just say give me one or give me the other. You say give me both." And I think they finally have come on board with that mindset of, you know, what these things are going to help me do my job better. A couple of them said like, you know, I work a lot less hard because I'm not sitting and combing through these, you know, meticulously dense reports before I go into each of my, you know, each of my meetings. You know, I'm given some information that works. Um, in, in a way, I feel that this was one of the most progressive-minded things that have ever happened with Salesforce is simply because, you know, here's a utility. Wow, I'm going to use this utility, and it's going to benefit everybody. Absolutely. No, I think, I think that enabling idea, which is that this is a tool. AI is a tool. And you have to figure out where it fits in with your job and how it can transform the job. So you spend more time talking to the customer than doing expense reports or combing through report data reports. Yeah. Um, that I think was an important switch. And when we do these pilots, of course, we you know talk to the reps almost weekly as as, as the pilot is rolling out, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, this is so much better." Like <laughs> Sunday night, I can just sit and sort of see, "Okay, what's up? Oh, these are the people I have to talk to. These are the key messages." I can agree with it or disagree with it. See, that's the other thing, which was... It doesn't entirely take it out of their hands. Yeah, it's another part, yeah. Because, uh, and that's the other aspect of AI. I think when AI is applied in a machine-to-machine sense, so the data gets crunched and one machine in the dead of night tells the other machine, send out these emails, mm-hmm. that's fine. You can do that, not a problem. But when there is a human, you have to allow for human judgment. And I think this is the other sort of big change in AI. Like I was saying... In the old days, you had, you know, gigabytes, megabytes of data, okay? You've got all these share reports. That got boiled down to 40 reports. Somebody looked at several pages of that and tried to distill from that the wisdom they needed. Now, what AI says is, don't try to do that. 
you've got a million rows, million doctors, half a million doctors, keep the insight at the doctor level. Don't try to digest it. Turn every insight into an action nugget at the individual doctor. Just serve it up to that rep who's going to talk to that doctor half an hour before he enters that office. Now, yes, there's a billion things going on at the back, but I get the three things I need today. Stuff that I, matters. Stuff that matters. And somebody else has combed through all of this. And I, uh, talking of adoption, reps are adopting these suggestions roughly to the extent of about 60 to 70%. It starts off about 30% and then over time it improves. And we clearly see that the people who adopt the suggestions do better. Mm -hmm. Their sales are better. Their engagement is better. And Larry, the other thing is you don't have to get really fancy with the math here. Simple idea. Pharma sends you an email, you open it 5% of the time. If the rep sends that same email from their quote-unquote account with their name on it, the doctor will open it 30% of the time. Hmm. So the idea that the rep, it's the same email, but I have multiplied the open rate by six. So the rep has also helped improve the productivity of my other channels. So the idea that these channels work together and help each other, the rep being helped by the data and the email stuff being helped by the rep, Overall, to create a good experience for the physician is like a win-win-win. And that idea that working together, though it creates more complexity, actually creates a much better effectiveness for everybody involved, both channels. That, I think, was a, a very, very crucial point. Mm -hmm. Which also explains why you know the reluctance that a lot of people expected didn't linger as long as many people thought it would. Absolutely. Right. Um, we're going to start wrapping up here, but I want to give you the uh, you know the question that we usually end on when we speak on the phone for stories or anything else. Kind of the the crystal ball question: um, What's next? You know, um, certainly there are any number of you know theories about how speed of this, you know, the scope of it, and everything else. What are the maybe two or three trends that you have your eyes on as we uh, look towards the rest of 2020 and beyond? Yeah. So the other big trend that is beginning to develop, sort of peeking through the covers, if you will, is the idea that let's take all of this thinking, all of this ability to do customer interaction well with physicians. What about doing it with patients? Because patients is something that pharma has not gotten very close to because of data and other issues. And one of the realizations that, uh, that we had and our clients had was you know, we spend all this time on promotion, which is the top of the funnel, making the patients aware, getting them to try medication, doing all these DTC ads. And of course, then the finally the rep and all that stuff to get the doctor to write the script. And then our job is done. It turns out that after you write the script, if you look at the bottom of the patient funnel, you lose 30 to 50%. So there is all this money that was put on the table and then taken away. And that was another click. I think people are beginning to say, wait a minute, we spend all 80-90% of our energy in the top half. Nobody's worrying about the bottom half. I mean, they are with patient support services and such. But the point is that they're not doing a very consistent, data-driven, patient-centric job of it. And if I could, once the patient has opted in on an expensive therapy, and many specialty therapies are now dollars $100,000 a year, patients opt in. And if I can predict, oh, this patient is not going to refill, we need to get them help of this kind oh, this patient is not going to stay on this medication. We predict that they're about to drop off. Can we intervene? Can we give them the help, the support they need? So all those ideas about data, personalization, and harmonized intervention with the patient once they're on your drug is another sort of big uh, 
pot of opportunity at the end of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. And I predict that that is what actually will accelerate in the next two to three years. As we talked about next best action for the physician, this is next best action for the patient. Mm. And the question, of course, is the two will eventually have to work somewhat together because the physician doesn't want to be cut out of the loop. But this, I think, will be one of the key trends to watch in the next two to three years. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming down here and speaking with us. Um, I say this to you whenever we're on the phone, but I always feel like I get off and I feel a lot smarter than I was before it. Many thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. It was a pleasure. All thank right. you. That's, that's it for today's MMM podcast. This is Larry Dobrow from MMM. Thanks so much for listening and take care.